The world is ending. Again. Doomsdayers and apocalyptic prophets have warned of coming calamity for millennia. Still, humanity persists. This podcast invites entrepreneurs, scholars, community leaders, artists, and many others to envision the end of the world according to their expertise. I'm Vera Rose Smith, your host, and this is Art at the End of the World. Today we welcome Louise Fisher, MFA. Louise is an Iowa-based artist with an MFA in printmaking from Arizona State University. She grew up on a farm here in Iowa and obtained her BFA with honors from the University of Northern Iowa. Her work explores time, light, and shadow. Our conversation was recorded on Wednesday, May 6th, 2020. Thank you so much, Louise Fisher, for joining me today on our last episode of Art at the End of the World. If you could start by introducing yourself and telling us a bit about your current role. Yes, thank you so much for um, having me on your podcast. I'm pretty excited. I didn't realize it was the last one, so I hope I can make it good. <laughs> um, well, I'm a print media artist and educator, and I'm based in Iowa City right now. I make multidisciplinary work, and I primarily work in printmaking and photography, drawing, and I also dabble in installation and performance. And my work largely is about how human beings experience time and the environment. So in terms of what I do outside of my art practice, I'm also a member and workshop instructor at the Iowa City Press Co-op, um, which is part of Public Space One, and it's a community-run print studio just a few blocks from my house. And I'm also an adjunct professor teaching studio courses in the Cedar Rapids area. Um, before this, I grew up on a farm about half an hour away from here, which you'll hear more about. And I earned my BFA from UNI in 2014 and my MFA from ASU in 2019. Awesome. Thank you so much. How did you get interested in being an artist? Oh, um, I, I don't know, because I've always wanted to be an artist. I don't know if someone just encouraged me to keep drawing, you know, like my mom or something. But I said at my grad, uh, my pre-graduation that I wanted to be an artist, which is so interesting. Um, like in terms of the work that I'm making, um, that I'm being interviewed about, I, I got really interested in circadian rhythms, um, you know, after I moved to Phoenix to attend grad school. Um, and it was in really stark contrast to my rural upbringing and living in the less densely populated cities in Iowa. Um, so I would say maybe the reason I got interested in art when I was a kid was because I spent a lot of time outside and, um, Nature really engages all your senses, you know, including your um, sight and sound. So I, I spent a lot of time enjoying the nightscape too as a kid. Um, it never really entered my artwork until I lost that landscape that I grew up with. Um, so growing up, my childhood bedroom window would be open at night during the summer, and I, I have really vivid memories of that. It was really dark. And I, I fell asleep to the sounds of frogs and katydids. And so I lived, you know, nearby fields and ponds. And the first place I lived in Tempe when I went to get my MFA was a like massive apartment complex in Tempe. And the rent was a thousand bucks a month. And it was the only thing that my partner and I could afford. <laughs> um, the, and the thing about apartment complexes is that you don't really have control of the exterior environment. Um, there were security lights like outside the front door and outside every window. And, you know, I had no option of turning them off and I probably uh, would have been fine for breaking the fixtures, which I thought about sometimes. But anyway, the bedroom window in that apartment always was closed with a thick blanket over it to block out the light. And then also we lived like a quarter mile away from 
a 12 lane interstate. So there's a lot of noise pollution as well. But I was experiencing like increased anxiety. My um, heart was skipping beat a beat. So palpitations, uh, just feeling really tired and irritable, losing sleep. And um, that's when I started to look into whether this was connected to the security lights. And um, that's when I learned about circadian rhythms and light pollution through this organization called the International Dark Sky Association. And I never really thought about that um, before and just realized that my physical and mental health was really dependent on cycles of light and dark. Um, and your experience of time really depends on your external environment. Thank you. I relate so much to this as a rural person as well. I remember yeah. the shock of moving to uh, the Quad Cities for college from my tiny rural town where my parents lived two and a half miles outside of town. So I was surrounded by woods and I could hear the creek from my bedroom window at night as a child too. And those mm -hmm. sonic environments, I don't know that people without such formative rural experiences are as jarred as we were, but <laughs> I, I so appreciate your reflections on that because that's very true for me as well. Yeah, so, I know of probably other rural people who were um, like able to acclimate. Um, it was pretty, pretty hard for me, but um, I don't know. I, I'm really inspired by nature, of course, and I'll probably talk about that more, but also mm -hmm. really interested in my experiences and areas that I feel you know, kind of new in. Right. So you always knew you wanted to be an artist and you studied as an undergrad at UNI to become an artist and then did an MFA. What other mm -hmm. steps did you take to become a professional artist? Yeah. Um, so there was that big challenge um, as a kid of being rural, um, you know, even though it inspired me quite a bit. Uh, I went to a really tiny underfunded school and I think I only took like three art classes or maybe two art classes in high school because we had half an art teacher. Um, so yeah, my, my community was really supportive of me. It was like a town of a 900 people or a thousand people. I was the only artist <laughs> and my parents weren't, didn't know anything about like a creative field necessarily so um they're really supportive but I felt really weird growing up and um I always think of my English teacher in high school who he left my high school the year that we graduated which was kind of fortunate for me but he had his MFA in creative writing and he pushed me so hard uh you know in his English class um writing creative stories and poetry and stuff like that um, but he, he really pressured me to like go to college and, you know, told me about his experiences. And um, I think probably without his kind of mentorship, I, I don't, I don't know where, if I would have gone to UNI and um, I would say that once I got to UNI, I met my art family and um, I wouldn't be where I am without that. And I really saw going to college was my only option to make a career out of art at the time, although that's definitely not true for everybody. But um, that was my experience. And what ended up being more valuable um, than the formal lessons at UNI was just getting exposure to other artists and immersing myself in the community, um, making friends. So before that, I, I didn't like know that this was a natural way of being in the in the world <laughs> um, and any opportunities I had after that were definitely just a mixture of relationships and um, not being afraid to put myself out there um, I think that in the art world like you really can build up good karma you know um, and it can work out in your in your favor um, and like everybody else, I have a fear of failure when I apply to opportunities or I take a professional risk, but I just put in my name in the hat all the time. And when I'm criticized, I 
try to, you know, incorporate what's useful and then like forget about everything else. Um, also, it's helpful to, you know, if you do apply for a lot of opportunities like grants or shows or jobs, just apply and then try, try to just forget about it. <laughs> if you're lucky, you'll <laughs> hear back. <laughs> um, also, uh, using a planner and to-do list every day, I know that's not for everybody, but um, that helps me a lot. <laughs> and I'm not really where I want to be professionally yet, like uh, probably preaching to the choir, but I'd love to have some, you know, more stability in terms of like profession and finances but um I recently like read something from another artist uh Michael Krager and he said to focus on success in the present moment and not in the future I mean I think that artists at any point in their professional career will do that you know just like how can I be better how how can I be the best and I like that because it's really easy to forget how far you've come and the, all the obstacles you faced in the past. Like, I I don't know. I, I feel pretty proud that I was able to, like, I'm really proud to be a rural person, but I'm also proud that I was able to, like, not get married when I was 18 and just, like, work at, I don't know, a job that I didn't like, right? Um, so I'm proud of myself for overcoming that. Yeah, I think your answer speaks to so many misconceptions, both about rural places and about artists. All of the most successful artists I know personally are very good at organization. And I think there's this stereotype of artists as being like scatterbrained and very chaotic, um, which maybe we are in our studio practice, but to get things out of the world, you have to be like really on top of it. And also, yeah, yes. I mean, rural places do not always have the same types of cultural resources as more urban mm -hmm. places when it comes to training, when it comes to access to professional opportunities in the arts. So you should be really mm -hmm. proud of that. So thank you. Would, uh, go ahead. Uh, I would love to, um, I don't know how far in the future this will be, but I think a lot about how to like make programming for rural kids uh, like rural students to have access to musicians or visual artists or actors um just so that they have contact with professionals and like just knowing that they're not weird yeah yeah absolutely knowing they're not weird and also knowing that art still happens in rural places i think is yes. really important for people outside of rural places again mm -hmm. to kind of burst that stereotype so I have a follow-up question for you. What, what was your biggest professional risk that paid off? Huh. Um, so far, I think the biggest professional risk was going to school at Arizona State. Um, there was like, money involved and moving across the country and going to a, a place I'd never visited before. <laughs> um, and I didn't know like if I was going to be successful, how successful I would be in, in graduate school. Um, that year I had applied, I think to four schools, got into two and one school offered me like a full ride um at a stipend and then ASU didn't offer me anything <laughs> and I remember talking to my friend Brianne Trammell um who had a face like a similar uh scenario when she was choosing between I think Syracuse and uh RISD and like thank you Brianne if you're listening to this but <clears throat> Um, ultimately, I decided to go to the school that had the greater sense of community. Um, I had a cohort in the, just in the printmaking department of, I think, nine people, including myself, which is a really big class, but um, they all became my best friends. And uh, 
I think that was more valuable um, than going to a program where like maybe I'd have less financial challenges, but like not as many peers. I, I wouldn't say that my studio practice is all inherently collaborative, but uh, I'm a very community minded person and really value friendships. So that was a big risk, but eventually um, I was offered a TA ship the next semester. Um, so I was able to teach, which was like a dream of mine. And every, every semester after that, um, I was funded and I even got to travel every summer. So that was a huge risk, um, but it ended up working out for the best. Thank you. I love that you valued community over immediate financial stability. And I, I uh, wish that wasn't a choice we had to make as artists, no. but I, I so appreciate your vulnerability in, in sharing that. So well, I, yeah, hopefully student debt is canceled. That's, I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping for that. <laughs> yeah, if one good thing comes out of our current situation, maybe it's that. <laughs> yeah, so, I'm thinking the same. So you draw inspiration from community and your relationships with other people, but can you tell us a little bit more about your inspiration in the natural world? Yes. Um, I would say what inspires me about the natural world is it reminds me that time is a circle and not a line. Um, so this can include like watching the life cycles or noticing the life cycles of plants, insects. Um, I'm really interested in species migration and celestial cycles of the moon and sun and really interested in cycles present in the human body like sleep and or, you know, menstruation too. And right now I'm reading rereading a book called Waking Up to the Dark by Clark Strand. And he outlined some research on how light has actually altered human like evolution biologically. And so the use of fire from prehistoric humans actually caused us to uh, go from being seasonal maters to like being able to mate year round. So we were like a lot of other species in that regard. And um, I'm not really sure if that's if it's light and heat or just one or the other, but, um, and then there's a sleep scientist named Thomas Weir who discovered that humans um, actually revert to a pre-industrial sleep cycle when they're in the absence of artificial light. He did this uh, sleep study with a group of people. Um, and so I think it took like six weeks for them to actually go to this um, first and second phase of sleep. Um, so I'll, I'll explain that a little bit, but electric light has caused us to compress our sleep into an eight hour time period and we'll just sleep all the way through. I mean, if you're lucky, but our ancestors and people that don't live with artificial light around the world experience a first and second phase of sleep where they go to bed when the sun goes down wake up in the middle of the night for a few hours and go to sleep again when the sun rises. And during this uh, period where you're awake, the author described it, he describes it as the hour of God and he likes to go on um, like these long night walks when he wakes up in the middle of the night. Um, and our bodies, well, during that time will secrete prolactin, which people call the, the love hormone and mothers experience that after giving birth. So, wow, we're, I don't know. I feel like I'm personally missing out on this and I've never, never experienced it because I haven't lived without artificial light enough, but I'm very fascinated by the science of the natural world alongside, um, you know, my more physical experience in it. Um, but I would also say that I'm equally like creatively fueled by the anthropocentric behavior that totally disregards these natural cycles and tries to like construct human time. So by that, I mean the 
like in a typical urban experience, um, it's like characterized by indoor work during the day where you're not getting access to the UV light you need. And then the domestic experience at night where you're, um, you're getting light, artificial light from screens, from the light bulbs and like essentially keeping on that artificial light right up until you go to bed. And that keeps us from the gradual darkness that we need to wind down and rest. Um, and like, there's a lot of factors that go into this um, big evolution of how we experience time. But um, I think a lot about our economic structure, like capitalism wants to use electricity to, you know, extend productivity into all hours. And unless, you know, somehow the night is profitable for a particular area, but I think I'll, I might touch on that later. Thank you. So what area of the world would you say is most threatened by light pollution currently? Mm -hmm. um, so I was looking into at one point what the brightest cities in the world are. And I am sorry to say that the top eight brightest cities are in North and South America. So they're on this continent, but I mean, let me backtrack. I would, I would say that like every area of the world is threatened by light pollution because light particles diffuse gradually throughout the atmosphere. So even if you live like two hours um, out of a major city like Las Vegas, you'll still see less in the night sky because of the urban sky glow. Um, so the top eight cities, uh, like American cities, surprisingly did not include New York or Las Vegas, um, but it did include air cities like Chicago and Detroit. Um, I want to look more into all the reasons for that, but some of the factors are, it sounds like are your climate. So, um, like if it's really hot in a desert and like there's more activity at night or if it's um, really long winters and you just, you need more um, light, like extended light, the length of the days, uh, cultural values, and then crime I think is another factor because artificial light is supposedly supposed to suppress crime. So, but I also want to say like the non-human species living in ecosystems around cities are also negatively impacted. Um, like I think of coastal cities, especially, for example, Miami, um, people are actively trying to save sea turtles from becoming extinct. The hatched turtles, like they're hatched on the beach and then they're supposed to go towards the brightest light, which, you know, up until 200, 200 years ago, was the moon reflecting on the seawater. So they go into the sea and swim away, but instead they're going in the opposite direction towards the like artificial lights on the beach, like on the beach or the on the roads around the beach and they're getting run over. Um, yeah, it's horrifying. That is super horrifying. Oh, those poor sea turtles. So in terms of the human species, are there people that are more affected by light pollution, even within these very bright cities than others? And who are those people and what are those effects? Yes, I would say I, I want to find, not that everything has to be backed by scientific research, but I'm just really into looking into that. I would say that inner cities are or neighborhoods that are close to industrial development, like stores, office buildings, factories, those are the most disproportionately affected. And it's something like 80% of the world's population can't see the Milky Way because they, they live in these urban areas. Um, so in the US, I would say it disproportionately affects people who can't afford to move to a suburban area. Um, so I would say working class, and immigrants um, and probably people of color as well. And 
it's disturbing because uh, light pollution can, um, well, it has physical effects on human health, and there's lots of research on this. Um, it can affect heart disease, cancer, um, and um, like mentally, it can it can affect um, like depression and anxiety. So I don't know. It, it'd be interesting to see more research being done from like a sociological perspective on that. But that's in what my, I think what my intuition is kind of saying. Thank you. So for cities that are already so affected by light pollution, as light pollution increases, will anything change for these urban environments? Could it possibly get worse? Yeah, it could always get worse. <laughs> um, so there is a light pollution classification called the Bortle scale, and it ranges from one to nine. And so one would be like excellent dark sky. So maybe that's like in uh, a national park in Montana or something. Uh, nine would be an inner city sky. And a lot of Cities that even within the cities they range um, on this Bortle scale. And I've heard stories about downtown Chicago or New York having pink night skies. I've never seen a pink night sky, but I believe it. And um, it's just that there's so much light bouncing around in the atmosphere. And then when it's a cloudy night, it, it traps even more light um, in that case. So I think you'd be lucky to see the moon, but during the last blackout um, in New York, residents were frightened by the Milky Way. Um, and I don't know, it makes me really sad that people have never seen it. And um, downtown Tempe, where I lived, I was able to see probably about 20 stars if there was a new moon, but less than that if there was a full moon. And I remember the sky being like mostly a deep blue, but as soon as clouds came in, the air kind of became gray or yellow and hazy. But um, luckily, light pollution is reversible. Like all it requires is just turning off the lights. So I, there's always room for improvement. And I, that makes me not want to give up because I know that it's just about like a cultural shift in, in values. Thank you for bringing that back around to a hopeful thought. <sighs> I'm going to destroy your hope now and ask you to describe the complete end of night because this is art at the end of the world. So what happens if night goes away entirely and how do we get there? Like, okay, this kind of the timeline leading up to the end of the night is what you're interested in. Yes. In. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. So I would say that we're like well on our way. If, if 80% of people can't see the Milky Way and light, artificial light at night becomes even more out of control, I think like it's about the human, like human consciousness. Like if you just don't know that you don't know what the stars look like that really affects um, kind of your life experience. And I don't know, just there's a sense of wonder in, in the night sky and, and seeing, being able to just see that far into space, it reminds you that like there's more to your day-to-day -day experience. So I think the end of night would be like, this is corny, but like in our hearts. Um, um, so then there would be like all these kind of rural areas, I guess, where there might be like if we all move to cities, there might be a lot of areas without light pollution. So that might be good for other species that need darkness. Um, I could also see. So I'm, I'm really interested in uh, celestial advertising. I 
maybe not a lot of people have heard about this. No, um, what is that? Oh my goodness, it sounds crazy. <laughs> it is. So I think last year, or maybe the year before, there was this startup from Russia called Start Rocket. And they were basically trying, I think they were trying to sell real estate in the, in the night sky, basically to corporations to be able to advertise their products like Coca-Cola was seriously considering this. So uh, that would be like putting satellites like into space and then using um, artificial light to like illuminate the word like Coca-Cola or something like that. And in that case, um, that artificial light would affect everybody on the planet. You wouldn't be able to get away from this like corporate like voice, you know, and it, it could, it could affect, um, like the biological rhythms that like amphibians and birds need, um, like, especially those nocturnal species would be vulnerable. Um, I don't know how serious this got either, but I think somewhere in Asia, uh, they wanted to like, <laughs> I don't know if it was like in an effort to get rid, like stop using street light lighting or something, but they wanted to like put this um, kind of like glowing orb in the sky that would be like, so it'd be like a full moon all the time. So like it would be even lighting rather than like all these spotlights with um, the art, you know, street lights. Uh, that was really disturbing to me because I was like, now, everyone in the world has to put up with that constant full moon. Like, can you imagine how haywire our bodies <laughs> become? Um, like, I don't know. It's just interesting that countries like ours, ours included definitely can think that they, that they can just exist without like other nations or think that what affects them doesn't affect others. Um, that is truly dystopian. Thank you. So dystopian. <laughs> so on the reverse of that, what are some ways cities can reduce light pollution? And do you know of any examples in which cities have gone to the extent that they can to mitigate this type of night disturbance? Yes. So, um, in terms of how this could turn around, um, I would say it's a com combination of personal and political will. It doesn't, it's like a lot of environmental issues. It doesn't just rest on your personal choices. It also rests on collective political action. Um, so I would say like first on the individual level, you just need some energy to be able to put that work in and how I get the energy and drive that I do to, to impact this is like staying in off-grid cabins where there's no light artificial light you just have like oil lamps I did that um at this at this uh artist retreat called Fantyland in California and that was such a that really changed my life um I felt really different after that um, going camping and minimizing the use of light, um, going on night walks. I get a lot of inspiration from my night walks. Um, and so like, and even my childhood memories too, those all fuel, um, you know, any, any energy I need to, uh, make political change. And, uh, a lot of cities, use artificial light to um well it's part of like the effort to kind of extend working hours and increase productivity um it's also part of an effort to cut down on crime so humans fear of the dark has always been a huge factor um in why we use so much artificial light and it's also that's also really wrapped up in Western culture. <laughs> Anywho, so it's kind of about change, changing our our cultural value in a way. Um, 
and the International Dark Sky Association, they're really huge advocates um, for political change on the city level. Um, so a lot has to just happen with like city ordinances and they actually have a, a program um, where your city can be registered as a dark sky city. And let's see, this, this organization started in Tucson, Arizona, and um, they actually have like a lot of astronomers living there and some telescopes. And so um, that makes sense why they started there. And they birthed the first dark sky city, like officially through the IDA. And I think Flagstaff was next. Um, this is kind of popping up more so in the Western United States where the population is a little more sparse and people like the economy is like largely dependent on astrotourism or, or tourism to national parks, people wanting to get a, you know, get to experience nature. Um, so I think that that's why it's worked so easily for those cities because ultimately it comes down to money. Um, but I, I got involved with the Phoenix chapter of IDA and they've been working for years um, to, I think their biggest success was all the street lights and highway lights in Phoenix were at one time like really high lumen and I think they were like a blue color. They had just transitioned to LED. And while LED does save energy costs, which is good for like energy use, um, it also, the, the more blue the life wavelength, um, the worse it is for you at night and the brighter, obviously the worse. So they were able to con convince the city to transition to uh, warmer LEDs that were lower lumen. Um, and I think that their main, the main rationale um, that convinced those city officials was human health and then um, like saving energy costs. So, um, it, I mean, if, if you tell someone that artificial light can actually cause obesity or heart disease or, or cancer, like that's pretty frightening. Um, so it's, I don't know. I mean, you can, you can tell them all you want about how other species are being negatively impacted, but I think ultimately it's not going to get, they're not going to act because they want to save this like certain species of moth, you know? Um, so that's kind of the approach. You kind of have to be strategic about that. Um, also, there's studies out there that show that artificial light actually makes it easier for crime to happen. Um, I mean, I can't say specifically, but I, I, I think that just like being so wired with the constant light, I think that it, it just makes you aggravated. And I think that that could be a catalyst for crime in some areas. And also the obvious, it, it makes it so that you're able to see you know, um, so that it's just e crime would be easier to execute in, um, in the presence of light. So, I mean, that's another angle that you can take too. Um, I just think that humans really need rest and they need, they need the sense of wonder um, from the night sky. I think to just feel, I don't know, feel more rested. I, it, yeah, I think I'll end it there. Thank you. Where mm -hmm. have you experienced the best night sky view? That's a good question. So I think pretty much immediately of my time in Tasmania, I got a residency um, at the Pickers Hut and Tasmania is a, it's a state in Australia, but it's a coastal state so it's just off the mainland and it's the southernmost like point it's like closest to Antarctica on that side of the globe and the southern hemisphere has very good night sky visibility um, and that was that was the reason that I, I went there um, I lived in a 
one bedroom a cabin <laughs> and I didn't get a ton of time looking at the night sky unfortunately because um with it being coastal all around like there's always kind of a fog that was so funny to me I was like I came all the way here and it's cloudy every night <laughs> but I think I would I got about like maybe half an hour of being able to see the night sky in all its glory with the new moon and I was laying down in the grass waiting for the clouds to pass over um and I just didn't know that the night sky looked like that <laughs> it was it looked like the best I can describe it it looked like blue magma like lava if it were blue and um never seen blue stars before and it looked like diamond crushed diamonds it was amazing and um when everything else around you is completely dark and all you can see is the stars a lot of the people including myself um experience vertigo you just like there's a word for it you just feel like you're being sucked into the sky like not in a scary way you just kind of transcend your your body and kind of your day-to-day -day worries so that was really amazing I, I don't even think I'm not even sure if in the northern hemisphere if we can see that much but I'm very grateful for that experience and I would just really love my fellow humans to be able to have that too thank you for that beautiful description so we've talked a lot about your inspirations <laughs> for making your art i'd like to transition a little bit more into the nitty-gritty of your creative process so could you describe your process mm -hmm. and also tell us a little bit about how you define installation and the type of work that you produce all right so i would say that there's kind of two phases to my work um and the first phase doesn't involve making anything really i okay first phase i explore my environment wherever i am and i like to take documentary photographs of that environment and just kind of start to analyze it um, i write a lot um, including just journaling, poetry, um, and I read for research quite a bit. And in terms of like research, I try to make it really well-rounded. So I read poetry books, I read scientific essays and articles, I read like historical documents and, um, or like sometimes even religious books. Um, so, eventually the ideas come after that and i start in my sketchbook um but more often than not i'm la like layering photographs and imagery in photoshop that i kind of have this like digital sketching process that i do usually coming from you know those documentary photographs that i mentioned before and i just start to see the connections between them and i think about how they could exist more physically in combination with printmaking. Um, so one of my most recent bodies of work, 24-7 interior, they were inspired by that um, trip that I had to Tasmania. And it's kind of a blend of that experience with my Phoenix experience. So <clears throat> they're all the, they started with a photo composite of all these urban um buildings with the with the windows being illuminated at night so like from the outside looking in and everything was cut out of those photographs except for the light and then i uh layered that over just a big color field of the of sunsets or sunrises so uh, involving like a lot of gradients of colors and so those became digital prints after I composited them in Photoshop. And then I combined it with woodcut, which is probably my, my preferred printmaking method. Um, 
I just carved like some line work um, referencing um, like electrical lines. And then I inked the whole thing up in these sky colors. And I layered that over the digital print. Um, it's <laughs> the thing about podcasts for artists is like, uh, you just need to go to my website and look at it and then it will make sense. But yeah, I would say that at that point, figuring out how I can combine digital images um, and make them more, more physical. And I also um, get inspired with some installation ideas too. Um, so at that point, I'm just kind of playing around in the studio. And I would say that I would define installation as art beyond the square. So by that, I mean like beyond a screen or a physical frame or, or a pedestal and installation, it uses active space, which is the artwork and then the inactive space, which is the, or, you know, supposedly inactive. It's the space between art objects and it allows us to interact with our bodies. Um, one recent, installation I made was called 45 minute drive to the sky. And I think some people could probably call it like a sculpture, like a sculptural object, but I call it an installation. It, I got a magic lantern off of eBay and magic lanterns were the predecessor to uh, digital projectors. And they have like a very early history like pre-industrial history actually using firelight and showing like scientific slides and um, astronomy was part of that too. So that's really interesting. But um, I wanted to um, exhibit these color slides that I took of, of the sunsets and sunrises around the desert in Arizona. Um, and I wanted it to just be more interactive with the body and more physical. And so with this magic lantern, it's just a box with a light in it and a lens. And then I had a wooden piece where the, the slides just sat inside of it. And it was like a long, uh, narrow piece of wood and the viewer could slide it back and forth. And there would, the, they were circular too. So there'd be like a circle of a sky, um, all these different colors that would go across the wall, depending on like how, how fast you moved across. Um, and so the projection was equally as important as the objects and the, and the walls that I placed around the magic lantern were equally as important because they provided the darkness needed to be able to see that light. And so to me, that, that was an installation. Um, I, I, and I think too about my mother who doesn't consider herself to be an artist, but she, I think she does installation too, because um, we have all kinds of photographs and like decorations around the house. And she's really good at mapping out like how those things should go on the wall and like the different themes for the different rooms. So I think that I kind of like learned installation from my mother. Um, yeah, just like, yeah, sensitivity to, to space and relation of objects in space. I love that definition. Thank you. And shout out to moms <laughs> making homes beautiful, right? Um, so yes. <laughs> how do you intend people to feel when they're introduced to the types of environments you're creating? I do want my work to be educational and informative to an extent, but not necessarily in the artwork it, itself, but kind of in the artist statement. And then in the work itself, you can just experience what I'm talking about. Um, <clears throat> I would say I want people, I want to address this um, deep longing that people feel or some unexplainable memory or emotion that's never been realized until they have a visual. And 
I just want people to remember they're connected to other species and the cycles of time. And I want people to remember that we're animals with circadian rhythms and that we can't transcend that no matter how hard we try to uh, progress. Thank you. And what gives you hope? <sighs> That's a, a really important question right now. Um, especially like being in quarantine, I am struggling so much with loneliness, like all of us are. I feel, I miss my art community and I miss being at the studio um, or just like traveling. I love, I love going on adventures, but what's keeping me sane and giving me hope right now is all my plants. I have dabbled in gardening for a long time, but this year I have um, a lot of herbs that I use for fresh meals. Um, so like basil, thyme, sage, rosemary, mint. And then I've um, also been German, I'm germinating some medicinal plants right now, which I'm really excited about, um, including mugwort, which is supposed to like enhance your dreams. And I don't know, I don't know if it makes you hallucinate or something. I, I hope that it's, <laughs> it's safe, but that could, that might become a future body of work, depending on how that goes. I, but um, it makes me feel like a co-creator. Um, and it, it makes me like look forward to the future. Um, Let's see. And then the generosity of other artists is really giving me hope right now. So shout out to artists because I'm just seeing a lot of mutual aid on social media. Like there's a lot of organizations with big followings who are offering, you know, like virtual exhibitions and promotions for uh, the MFA and BFA students who had their their um, thesis shows canceled. It's horrible, but like, I mean, it's so great that they're getting probably argu arguably more exposure because of that. Um, and artists are just being more open about their processes and like more open to sharing their knowledge. And I feel really inspired by that and like, there's a lot of solidarity in the academic art community right now that gives me a lot of hope with, you know, counterbalance with all the, you know, pessimistic forecasts and of higher education. Um, another thing that gives me hope is um, Public Space One, uh, which is an art organization in Iowa City. Um, they're having weekly studio check-ins with their members and it, now at this point it can include members like in our physical community or people that used to be involved but now live in other states and so that's been really good for my for my mental health and just keeping me engaged and and hopeful so thanks ps1 um and i i might talk about a new project yeah go for it it's kind of giving me hope. <laughs> so it doesn't have an official title yet. I'm just calling it the Species Loneliness Project. Um, it's a little bit of a departure uh, from light pollution, but you know, I think the themes are the same. <clears throat> so without the ability to safely travel around and document um, like office building windows for the work that I make. Um, I just got the idea to get images of windows from the inside looking out, which is such a like, um, it's becoming such a metaphor for longing <laughs> to be outside right now. And um, so I asked 
my followers on Instagram if they would be willing to send me images of their window as long as I could see the entire window in the frame. So I want to use them in like a collage kind of of some sort and make this like collective home or something. But I got 60 people sent me images and some of them sent multiple images. And I would follow up with, uh, can you tell me a meaningful about a meaningful moment you had with another species? And so I have like tons of stories, um, stories about like going on bike rides while deer run across, like run alongside you or stories about singing to giraffes at the zoo. <laughs> um, that gave me a lot of hope. And I, I think that a lot of people in, at least in like my circle or like from what I'm observing, a lot of people are thinking about other animals, like just paying attention to the animals outside your window, like squirrels or whatever, or like a lot of people are growing plants who have no idea what they were doing. <laughs> They're just learning as they go. Um, so I think without the normal busyness of life, like maybe we're transcending um, our human centeredness and kind of realizing that we're co-creators. Uh, so that that's like one upside to all this, I think. I love the idea of singing to giraffes at the zoo and that is something I need to do this time <laughs> I go. <laughs> yes, yes, that story was great. The, the giraffe actually was like looking at them for like a solid five minutes, very intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but that's super hopeful. Is there anything else I should have asked mm -hmm. you? Well, hmm. I would say I'd like to share my reading list if anyone listening is interested in learning more about the topic of the end of night or light pollution. Oh, sure. I can put um, that into the show notes, but you're welcome to drop some yay. authors and titles right now. Okay, great. So first thing you can do is visit the International Dark Sky Association's website. It's darksky.org and they have a lot of links to scientific research related to artificial light. Um, so if you're like you're interested in particular cities or particular species um, that might be affected, that'd be a good resource. Um, so I mentioned this earlier, Waking Up to the Dark by Carl Strand. He is like a theologian. Um, he includes a lot of scientific research throughout his book, but his um, his like background is in, I think, Buddhism, I think. So it's kind of this uh, spiritual um, and then also looking into various religions interpretation of night. Um, so that's really fascinating. And then At Days Close, Night and Times Past by Roger A. Eckert. I think I pronounced that right. I referenced that book so much um, in my thesis in 2019. And I read that book when I was in Tasmania. And it's a pretty long book, but it explores pre-industrial European life at night. Um, and so it informed a lot of the cultural and historical context behind like, I don't know, how Westerners view nighttime. Um, so <laughs> it's been, a, you know, a long history in the making. Um, and then The End of Night by Paul Bogard. He is uh, primarily, like, a, I think a creative writer and an author. So he, he just has a lot of case studies and research that he did about how like artificial light is, is affecting our experience of night and it's kind of multidisciplinary. Um, and then in Praise of Shadows, uh, oh boy, I don't know if I could pronounce this, Junichiro Tanizaki, he was a Japanese designer. I think he wrote that book in the 70s and it's like a long 
kind of personal essay about <clears throat> how Japanese culture traditionally really values the nat like the integration of natural world with human design, like architecture, for example, um, and how he was documenting the beginning of Western influence in terms of like these very garish like artificial lights being introduced and he was especially like him complaining about how well you can't really experience a Japanese house with artificial light in it because uh the fireplace needs to be this dark so that there's like all these shadows crisscrossing um so that's a really cool book it's probably 30 pages um or well, maybe like 70 is short and lots of other books, but those are related to, to dark sky research and night research. Um, Thank but you yeah, so much. I, yeah, of course. This has been Art at the End of the World with Beryl Rose Smith. Check out our other episodes to find out other ways the world might end. The music for this podcast was written, performed, and produced by Gabby Vanek. You can hear more of her work at her SoundCloud, which is linked in the show notes. Thanks, Gabby, and thanks all of you for listening.